1: It's going to be a high-jinks episode of Homo Sapiens Today, listeners, because while it will still be the soothing bubble bath, husband's going mad in the garden right in front of me. I'm indoors. There's glass between us because I'm warm. We're clearing the garden. I say we in the grandest sense of the word as I sit here in my slippers talking to you. But there's a wood chipper involved, and that wood chipper is going to start up at any point. So throughout this conversation, you're going to hear at some point, ah, literally i'm not even joking can you hear that i'm gonna have to move venues um has your christmas been as restful as mine i hope so it's a problem with being gay we love a project let me move to the kitchen right change of venue much much calmer in here the only sound risk we have is the dog barking at anything that moves past the house within a four-mile radius, so I think we'll be fine. Won't we, Ridley? It's always very calm in here with you, isn't it? We've got a lovely episode of Homo Sapiens for you today. It doesn't involve trees being chopped down. It doesn't involve dogs barking. It involves a wonderful, wonderful man, Mossin Zaidi. He is a writer who wrote a memoir called A Dutiful Boy. A Dutiful Boy is about... His experience of growing up gay as a Muslim. It's an incredibly beautifully written book, and Mossin is just a really interesting person, full stop, book or no book. And he grew up in East London, the son of an immigrant family, and ended up going to Oxford, which is what his family really wanted for him. But th- throughout the thread is this one thing about the fact that he really didn't want to be gay. Like, it tore him up inside, which is just heartbreaking to read, but also now is very happy and madly in love and all the rest of it. Not that you have to be madly in love to make a happy ending, but he loves himself and his family love him. But he just writes beautifully. The way that he tells his story is... I find it fascinating with LGBTQ plus stories, where it's just a case of... No matter how many times you hear someone's story, their own detail is... is, is beautiful, you know. Um and it's such a lovely chat. It's a, it's a properly deep chat that we have actually. And I for one love it. Now how how on earth have all your Christmases been? We've got more voice notes actually from you all about your version of Christmas and all of that which is really lovely and thank you so much for continuing to send them in. Have you caught up with all the Christmas content we had Sean faye on the show, writer of the transgender issue and argument for justice beautiful chat. Uh, Our Christmas special with Andrew Garfield, (whistles) what a reaction, what a man, what a great chat and did you have a chance to watch Tick Tick Boom over Christmas? God it's good. Stay in touch with us listeners, it's hello at sapienspodcast.com, at homosapiens on Instagram and I want to hear all about your New Year's resolutions, I want to hear how you're getting on in these strange times and please keep sending your agony uncles, we love them, we love them, we love them. And contribute to any Agony Uncles you've heard before. You know, the one we did with Andrew last week. Let's know what, uh, what your additions to that answer are. Um, I was pretty hard on Granny, wasn't I? Um, stay connected. And also, on Instagram, we got all news and culture and all that stuff. It's brilliant. Just go there. You'll love it. Um, and also, while you're there, go to um, Homo Sapiens Podcast on Facebook. Now, my Christmas was soothing, nutritious, delicious. I did go a bit mad on the lights. I'll level with you. You can get these ones off um, the internet, I'll say, uh, which are battery-operated and remote-controlled, and you can time them to come on at certain times. And I just, once you start wrapping them around a tree, you kind of can't stop. And then I was wrapping them around a bush, and then I was up a ladder wrapping around another tree, and then I wrapped them around another tree, and then I lit a fire pit. I don't know what was up with me, to be quite honest with you. Now then. Let's have a look at some emails. Rodolfo, thank you for the lovely message. Rodolfo's written to us. Howdy, Christopher. Howdy, Rodolfo. Big hugs to everyone on Team Homo Sapiens. Thank you, Rodolfo. They're a great team. What a gang we are. You've been a bright spot in another year of, well, the less said about it, the better. Oh, thanks, Rodolfo. May you and yours be surrounded by all you need to make your Yuletide gay and may 2022 bring the start of something better for us all. (gasps) So right, Rodolfo. Happy holidays, Rodolfo. In Texas, no less. Thank you, Rodolfo. Thank you so much for writing in. And boy, do I love a gay Yuletide. Hey, you know what as well? The uh, the Christmas album I always put on that I think is overlooked is Richard Hawley, Cole's Corner. I'm going to play it literally after this, actually. It's the most Christmassy, Christmassy music ever. Um, and I love it. I was talking about asking for your recommendations about gay godparenting. And uh, Craig got in touch. I was saying, oh, can you think of good presents for the godchildren? And Craig sent in... Where is it, Craig? A brilliant thing, which was like this cheese uh, making thing. Because I was saying I don't want it to be too wasteful. Um, and just, you know, sending plastic around the world. And Craig's suggestion was this thing called the Big Vegan Cheese Making Kit. Perfect gift for the little vegan in your life. £28.50. They can, can share it then, all 12 of them. Find out a bit more about it and the creative small business that sells it here. And then it's on Not On The High Street Cheese making kit, which looks really cool. And I the kids, the kids would love this. Craig, thank you so much for that. What a brilliant, ingenious present. And not just for godchildren, children, quite frankly. Now, let me press play on we've got another uh, message about godparenting.
2: hey chris i'm just listening to the wonderful sean faye episode thank you very much for that and ridley as a co-pilot for the episode is doing a fabulous job and i was wondering about something you said uh, because you mentioned godchildren and that you have so many and that um you think it's it's a gay thing it was just kind of a comment but one that i found really interesting because i had never heard of that and um you know i'm i'm not a godparent i'm not sure about my my queer friends i wonder whether it's possibly a gender thing or um cultural in some way well i found it very interesting and I'd, I'd love to hear more about that um what your what your impression is of that and maybe what other people think and also um i loved hearing about the polish lgbtq plus library and I'd love to be in touch and, um, you know, maybe feature that in some way on my Queer Lit podcast as well, because it's such important work.
1: By all means, please, let's support the library in any way we can. Be in touch. Let's chat. Let's chat. Yeah, godparents. I don't know. I mean, I feel like... Listeners, I want you to write in and contribute. I want you to tell me what you think about this. I think there was a history of feeling like gay men specifically couldn't have kids so therefore you could make them a godparent as a kind of way to let them have some form of kid but I don't know it's sort of you know there's no um, pretty low on research on this but I, I don't know I just felt like that's that was the case the other thing is like some people have often said oh well you're always like and I don't, I don't agree with this, and I don't like it, but I'm just, I'm just reporting. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, you're glamorous, and you know, you're, uh, you, you know, you always have nice stuff, so you'll be good at that, and you always give good presents. Gays give good presents because we're thoughtful, um, and I mean every single one of us. And when I say gays, sorry, I mean the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. We're thoughtful people because we've been through stuff. Um, that's my opinion, anyway. Feel free to shoot me down. I don't know. And that's what, that's my experience. And there was me thinking that I just had to be a godparent to thousands of children. Maybe I should have said no to some. But I love them all in their own special way. I've obviously got favourites. That's a joke for any of them listening. I imagine one one of them will be soon. Not that, actually not that. I was going to say soon old enough to listen. Not the stuff that comes out my mouth. Blimey. Potty mouthed. Um, also with all your stories over Christmas, of, you know, uh, hitting people, stealing things. I mean, I felt like we were all a bunch of pirates when I, read out, when I read out, when we listened to those voice notes. Very funny, all of you. We've got some more voice notes, actually. Let's have a listen to a few more of your voice notes about what your Christmases are like. Let's have a listen to Richie.
0: So going back in the closet over Christmas time with family, you know, it's never something that I've been asked by family members to do. Um, it's never even necessarily something that I've consciously made a decision to do it's definitely been subconscious Um, you know I came out when I was 18 and I'm now 35 and it's just never been something I've, I've ever felt comfortable with especially at that time of year in that sort of family dynamic you know I've got brothers and sisters and over the years their partners have been introduced to the dynamic along with nieces and nephews and um I've always sat there feeling like it's never something it's just not something I'll ever be able to to join in with. Um and especially now I've got nieces and nephews of sort of teenage years, it's definitely something that causes me a lot of fear and dread and shame.
1: Richie, thank you for that lovely message. It it's interesting that these are these going back in the closets are unspoken requests. It's very interesting how it's implicit that something needs to happen tim has been in touch as well
2: so i feel like i have
1: to go back partly into the closet over christmas what i mean by that is my family know about me and my sexuality they maybe don't know my full personality if that makes sense so i have to present a version of myself which is kind of the version that i was when i was growing up which wasn't my true authentic self if that makes any sense and i'm sure i'm not the only person that does this it's probably quite common um, but I feel like I have to present the uh, family appropriate uh, or acceptable version of myself, uh, particularly around Christmas time, because that's just the easiest thing for everybody else. So maybe not me, but that's just what I'm quite used to. So, you know, that's what I do every time. Exactly, Tim. You shouldn't have to take the weight. You know, LGBT people and beyond but any kind of subsection of society we're very used to sort of taking the emotional weight of a room like we don't want to upset everybody we don't want to freak anybody out and it's it's a lot of labor that you shouldn't have to be doing i think we catastrophize the results as well i'm not saying us i'm talking about the people who want us to stay in the closet who want us to clip our clip our big gay wings it's it's a cost the emotional labor of it all is a cost and we need to remember that cost is one that you should not have to be doing even though even if you do it instinctively thank you so much for all those beautiful messages about your Christmases uh it's a really interesting time for all of us and I'm so pleased we've got each other at this funny old time of year and homo sapiens heights is open throughout the new year into into blue january or dry january we'll be talking about that actually we're here all the time so you know if you're ever feeling a bit blue what with all the craziness in the world consider us uh, a nice warm constant now then on to today's chat with the amazing moss anxiety author of the best-selling memoir a dutiful boy here it is listeners i feel like i know you already but we've never met <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, I've, I've got that a lot recently, funnily enough. <laughs> really? wow, because of the book that I published.
1: Because I feel like uh, I know you and I feel like we've spoken when we haven't. I have yet to say to you how much I loved your book. Thank you. What I really loved was you were never afraid to tell the detail of something and within the detail is the beautiful stuff that we can all relate to. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did you feel when you're writing that stuff very unsure as to whether that was the right stuff to be writing
3: well I just wrote what came from the heart I guess so it wasn't I, I wasn't very discerning uh much to my editor's dismay um <laughs> so I so the, the original length of the book was double the size that it currently is and um it's funny because when people when you write a book, people are like, "Oh no, you know, it's so much work writing a book." Actually, the writing is, is the fun bit. The the awful bit is the editing because yes. then you get like, you know, editors. I, I had a wonderful editor, and she was she just said, "Look, it's ultimately it's your decision, but I would lose like this chapter." And I was looking at the chapter, going, "Oh my god, that's like a week of my life. I'm never going to get back." <laughs> but then, but I really respected her and I trusted her judgment. And so, if she gave it the snip, then I gave it the snip.
1: Yes. And you know that they're doing it because they have your best and its best interests at heart, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And she had, um, so her name's Arazu Tassin, and she worked on um, Malala's book and she worked on Khalid Hosseini's two books. Um, I wow. think she's got a third now. But, um, and when we first sent her the draft to see whether she would do it, I kind of had my fingers crossed. And we had a call and she was so lovely about it. And I was just, it was a pleasure to work with her. And I did really respect her opinion. But as you say, it was really great to have somebody else because I'd spent so long on my own writing. And mm. then you've got this entire book and you're really insecure about whether or not it's a pile of shit, to be honest. And so <laughs> to have somebody read it and say, there's, loads of good stuff here and there is some shit stuff that, yeah, as well um mm. it was it was a, yeah it was great to have her support
1: did you ever find yourself thinking as you were deleting a chapter i wonder if malala had to put up with this I malala... <laughs>
3: yeah i bet she didn't no um, i no <laughs> i did i didn't probably not in that that kind of not in not in that tone but i definitely thought Oh, I, I, yeah, it would have been really cool to be the person who helps Malala tell her story because what I mean, that is an amazing story. So, yes. uh, probably not Malala didn't have to put up with this shit, but, but definitely thinking about Malala writing a book. <laughs> also, because I have Pakistani heritage, so Malala I'm a big fan of.
1: You don't want to have Malala in your head as you're trying to write your own story, I imagine, because.
3: Or Khalid Husseini.
1: Yeah, I'd love to read the chapters that got deleted. But um, one of the things that someone said when they were reviewing it in The Guardian, was that, and I'm probably going to get all the description wrong here, but, by the way, this ends nicely, Um, (laughs) but it was sort of talking about how there can be a trope in memoirs about people from Southeast Asian families, from Muslim families, about the kind of demonization of those families and breaking free from that. Mm -hmm. And that can contain undertones of like, once you break free and come to us i.e britain as what it allegedly once was or something mm. uh that is freedom that is acceptance that is all those things and they were talking about that in the review and i wondered if that was in your mind knowing what you were stepping into a sort of that's the territory that is quite except is quite well trodden for those kinds of books
3: yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I don't know if it was in my mind politically. I think what was more in my mind was a need not to vilify my family because mm. they're not villains. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I, I often say that to the extent there are any heroes in the book, it's my parents and my siblings, it's not me. Um, and it was really important to me to, to demonstrate how hard it was for them and why because I didn't want to become the anti-Muslim narrative because there are so mm. many uh, stereotypes And I guess misstatements about what it means to be a Muslim in Britain today. And it was really important to me not to feed those. Um, Mm. So there was a kind of a broader thing about protecting my community, but also a very specific thing about protecting my parents. Because, yeah, they hated the fact that I was gay, but so did I. Like, I didn't didn't kind of come out and suddenly I was like, this is fantastic. For the longest time, I dreamt of this kind of magical button that I could press that would make me straight and i had an incentive a built-in incentive to get over it but they didn't and we were all raised in the same community and household and faith so yeah i think i think demonstrating how hard it was for them was really important but also because i wanted other parents reading it to be able to sympathize and recognize their own experience but then in the hope that uh, I mean, there are no, no spoilers, really, but my parents end up, by the end, being really loving and accepting of my sexuality. And I hoped that by having, reflecting an experience that parents have of finding it really hard would help other parents in their journey. But that wasn't going to be possible if I presented these you know, evil characters. Hold
0: up. What was that?
1: they're doing it to try and protect you in their own way.
3: Absolutely. Relo. Even when they, you know, I write about the fact that my dad called a witch doctor to the house to try and cure me. And that was probably the hardest in terms of my relationship with them. Because even even though there was no physical abuse, that felt like a violence inflicted upon me. Because I do think that conversion therapy, whether it's mental or physical, is a violence that's inflicted upon the queer community. And to and to see that in their love my parents were able to inflict violence upon me made me sit up and think, okay, how much of this should I subject myself to going forward?
1: When you say how much of this subject yourself to going forwards, do you mean from your family or just in in life in general?
3: No, I meant I meant from my family. Because right. I had after coming out to them I had spent years holding on to them, you know, because they had raised me in this house of love. And so for so long, I used that love, the energy to hold on to them and say, I'm not going to let go until you Mm. accept me. But that moment with the witch doctor is one of those moments where I thought, okay, maybe it's time to walk away from this.
1: Would you elaborate a bit on that day? Because it's, it's quite an amazing part of the book.
3: So I had told my dad, I'd come out to my dad a week earlier and his initial reaction was to tell me that he loved me and that I was his son um, and I had my bags packed upstairs and he said I wasn't going anywhere, that this was my home.
1: Which was a real surprise, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had my bags packed and I had like a, I was going to go and stay with um, the parents of a university friend until I started my job as a lawyer, which was coming up in a few months. I had a whole plan. Mm-hmm. Um And my uncle was there because we were worried about physical violence. Um, And my dad had this beautiful reaction, which I wasn't expecting. And I did think at the time, this is too good to be true. Um, And then a week later, I was in the library and I just kept getting messages from my brother and from my dad saying, when are you coming home? And it was a Sunday. and I thought this something's up. So I I, I went Mm -hmm. home and there was an old man waiting, a Pakistani guy waiting in the living room. And at first he just asked me to go for a walk. So we went for a walk and he said, "Um, I understand that you've told your dad something. Can you please tell me? And so I said, yeah, I'm gay. And he said, who told you that? And my response was puzzled because I thought nobody told me. I I just know. (laughs) And then he was like, well, how do you know? And I thought, well, I could fill you in on some details, but I don't think you'll want those. (laughs) Um, But then eventually we kind of, you know, I said, "I, I just know. And he, his response was to say, well, I've helped people like you and they're not gay anymore. Mm. And I was arguing back and forth and nothing was landing. And I remember just thinking, why can't I get through to this guy? And eventually I just said, look, are, are you gay? And he paused and he looked like I'd kind of sworn at his mum. And he said, no, of course not. Uh, how dare you? And I said, okay, well, if you're not, then you've got no idea whether these people are lying to you, do you? Because mm. you go into a house you exploit these vulnerabilities that these people and their families have. And then in order to get you to go away, they lie to you. Yeah. And he, he said I was the most stubborn man he'd ever met. And I was quite <laughs> proud of that. And then we, he marched me back home. Then he tried to give me an ointment. To, to, and he said that if you drink this every day, eventually you'll be cured. And my dad, I said, no. And my dad said, please do it for me. And I said to my dad that the, that the reason that I couldn't drink it was for him because every day that I drank the ointment was one more day that he thought that this was going to change and it wasn't.
1: Mm. There's such a fundamental point in what you're saying about how he said, oh, I cured people. And you're like, well, they, will probably just, they would have just lied to you to get you to go away. And that's yeah. making people go back in the closet. And that's really sad and really dangerous. Mm.
3: Yeah. It is. And that's why I, I mean, I write a lot about banning conversion therapy. And I really hope the government hurries up um, and gets its act together on that, because I was really lucky. Right. Like I had I was about to become a lawyer at a big law firm. I was moving out of the house. I had been trained in how to argue. I knew the difference between right and wrong. I wasn't vulnerable anymore. But most of the time, these kids that are being subjected to this horrible um treatment quote unquote they're really vulnerable like five years earlier if that same man had come to the house i would have downed the whole bottle in one go you know yeah
1: you really really didn't want to be gay right
3: Right. absolutely not
1: but i think what's interesting is because the you know the sort of subtitle or whatever the proper word for it is a memoir of a gay muslim's journey to acceptance yeah but actually it's just as much your family's as well I think that is perhaps the slant that we haven't seen I'm almost like I kind of want your mum to write her version
3: absolutely yeah yeah yeah. I mean so first of all the um the subtitle changed for the paperback and for that very reason because Mm. I think the problem I mean that that subtitle was not my idea but the problem was that it too narrowly focused on one part of what is a much bigger story. So the reason it's mm. a bigger story is because it tells a story about class and about race, um, but it's also a bigger story because, as you say, it's not my story, it's our story. And, you know, the uh, I said this earlier, but the 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 real inspiration, the real kind of cheering moments in the book are not when I come out, it's when my family suddenly... Are able to find it in their hearts to to accept me for who I am, um, mm. and actually one of the, the way that came about was a few years before writing the book, I took I managed to convince my mum to go to this um, this it was called the big queer iftar and iftar is the um, Muslim ritual of breaking fast during the month of Ramadan so somebody had organised this huge kind of dinner for Muslims who are fasting from the queer community. And I took my mum and I told like one person, oh, this is my mum. And then it spread like wildfire around the room. And by the end, there were literally a queue of people lining up to speak to her because they couldn't believe that there was a parent in the room. And I remember thinking at the time, I need to find a way of bottling this, so to speak. I need to find a way of showing people what's possible. And that's partly what inspired the book.
1: Yeah, and also to show people that it takes a minute for people because we all react to something mm-hmm. with the tools that are in our hands at that moment. Yeah. But by learning something massive about someone, which actually shouldn't be massive, but you know, by learning something about someone, you're on the beginning of a journey and to discover and learn. And if you, you know, because I think am I right in saying both your parents said when you told them like we love you yeah but you know they're doing what they can with the tools that they have and it, it, while it might be a difficult conversation I'm thinking for people in your position who are listening is what I'm talking is mm-hmm. is where I'm going with this it might not also it doesn't end like that it might just be the moment that you have to work through and work together and there's your mum going to a queer iftar I mean that's amazing
3: yeah I mean I, I really I, I agree completely with what you've just said I think it's really important um to remember that your first reaction to something is never your only reaction to something and (laughs) it's easy to forget that right because when I was when I was coming out to my parents or thinking about it all I ever fixated on was that moment and how they would respond but that moment lasts like 10 seconds a minute an hour and then that hour passes and that day passes and that week passes and When you're on the, when you're on one side of it, it can feel like you're never going to see the other side. Like literally you can feel like your life is in peril. But once you've gone past that point, you realize that things, things change, things evolve, albeit really slowly sometimes. Mm. And one of the biggest things I say to, I get loads and loads of messages online from people all over the world. And one of the most important things I say is just to have patience. Because if it's difficult for us as queer people living in this heteronormative society, then it's inevitable that it's not going to be straightforward for some of our parents as well.
1: Exactly. And I don't know, there's something in there about, I understand people have very individual situations and they are very difficult, but I do think there is something in there about not making your mind up for them about how they're going to feel and going, you're a person I love, we're going to do this together. You're going to be okay with this. And I'm going to help you understand that. Yeah. So what what was your mum like at the Iftar?
3: So the great thing about um, my, my parents, and I'm sure this is true of lots of parents, but it's definitely true of Pakistani parents, is however upset they might be about something, if somebody, for example, comes to your house, you will offer them tea, you will ask them how they are, you will force feed them lots of like samosas and pakora and like any food you've got in the fridge You'll insist they take food home because that's how that's the beauty of my community. And so my mum, when she was put in this environment, that communal sense in her just came to the fore, as I knew it would, because Mm. she can't help but be a wonderful human being because she is a wonderful human being. Um, But it's interesting because I think we know our parents better than anybody else does usually. And I could see I could just see that it was a mask, that it was a facade that she was being really lovely, but that it was, re- it was hard work and that it was draining for her and that she was having to fight something internally, that there were demons that were having to struggle. And it was almost, the reason I could see it, it was, it was in between conversations. There, she would just go into herself and the smile would fade before it then returned. And it was in the fading of that smile that the mask slipped for a moment. And so I could see how hard it was for her and I, that made me feel really guilty. But at the same time, I knew that throwing her in at the deep end was the only way of getting her eventually to learn to swim.
1: Really? I remember when I first started going out as a, as a young gay man on the scene and my friend pulled someone and we ended up staying over at their house. And in the morning, we all woke up in this house. I had slept in a room on my own, but he had slept in this room with this Person who he was seeing, they were sort of seeing each other. Mm. And I remember walking past the hall and they were in bed together in the morning. And I looked in and they started talking to me from the bed. And if you had asked me my feelings on my life at that point, I would have been like, I'm totally fine with being gay, don't care, whatever. But actually, it completely freaked me out that seeing two guys in bed opposite each other. And I was like, you know, now I look back and I'm like, I think it's because I was gay at night. I would go out, you know what I mean? And I would be that at night. But this was like a whole different thing that I was having this really intense reaction to. Despite being someone who had decided they were gay, they were happy with it. My family were kind of cool with it. Society is what it is. But so then I imagine, you know, your mum being really new to it all you know and i'm not saying i'm 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 cautious of saying that's anything to do with you know her background i'm just saying it's new to her Mm. and still she's swimming do you know what i mean that's Mm. incredible yeah
3: i'm uh, that's really interesting what you said just then um about being a nighttime gay so to speak because i do think Mm. that so much of the time we are raised in a way that is designed to demarcate parts of ourselves for different parts of our lives. Like we divide ourselves up. Um, One of the things I I write about is that we're born whole and then quickly broken into these small parts. Um, Hmm. And I kind of lean on this analogy with this Japanese art form, Kintsugi, where they take this golden bowl and... Um, if it breaks into different pieces, they believe that if you put the glue the pieces back together with like golden resin, then you have this new bowl and it has these gold lines running through it. And like that's the way I feel about identity: is that we we break ourselves up or we're broken up by lots of other like societal expectations. And then this exercise of our lives becomes finding a way of bringing these things back together. So for you, it was like okay, well you can be gay at nighttime, but like as soon as the sun comes up and you, you're back to being Chris rather than gay Chris. Yes. When actually, in fact, there's there's no difference between the two. But because of the way that we are conditioned, we deploy these different parts of ourselves at different times because it feels like the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, well, I was reading this article because I always berate myself for being such a people-pleaser. And I'm always like, oh, for God's sake, why can't you just walk into a room and like, you know, I don't know, it's just always on my mind. And then I was reading this lovely article about just, we are social animals we are mm-hmm. it is ingrained in us to ingratiate ourselves with the group and that's not going to change and you know i was thinking of that that article just cuz i read it the other day of when you are describing your mum like you know she's in that iftar but even then she, you know even though Absolutely. while it's not great for what's going on for her she knows how to ingratiate herself to the group because it's it's deep within us yeah. you know and and i think actually that's what a lot of internalized homophobia is is that it's deep within me to make sure I appear. This is when I was 19 Hmm. and I'm quote unquote through it now. Um, But, you know, like, you know, it's deep ingrained within me to try and not appear gay unless I, at moments when I have to, I am trying to get off with someone in a nightclub. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's code switching, isn't it? I think.
3: Yeah. And I think the other thing for me was just not being able to recognize the ways in which, my gay identity was something that I could use t- to. It, it was a tool to be able to celebrate the other parts of me. Mm. I never, I'd never thought about it like that. But like, I, I love the queer community and I love being a part of it. But it's not everything that that is me. And and I'm equally proud of and celebrate my kind of Pakistani heritage and and although I'm not, I don't, I'm not religious anymore. My Muslim heritage seeing the way that people in the queer community are able to really own who they are and and for it to empower them helped me not just live in my own queer skin but to live in my skin full stop and to mm-hmm. bring all these things and hold them as hold them together
1: yeah cuz i remember you saying somewhere that it kind of gets up your nose that like people assume once you say you're gay your religion is just then taken off you. You know, it's like, oh, well, you can't be religious then. Or You've left your heritage as a result yeah. of being gay when actually that's not the case.
3: So for me, the faith was a... Leaving faith or, or not necessarily following the rules was a personal choice. But it, I do find it problematic to make that assumption. And I guess it's because it reinforces a stigma and a stereotype and a hatred. Because... Mm. Actually, our default should be that everyone can be whatever they want to be. And as soon as you set up a binary and say, oh, well, if you're going to join me in this club, then you can't also be a member of that club. Mm. Then you're helping to reinforce the idea um, that there is something inherently wrong with being gay. Because what you're saying is, actually, you can't be both. And 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 it's, it's dressed up as, oh, well, actually, the problem is with faith. But really what you're doing is you are adding fuel to that fire because what you're you're perpetuating and you're reinforcing is the idea of this stigma that you can't be both so i think that it's really important for people to be able to identify on their own terms what they choose to be and what they don't choose to be
1: let's end up part 1 of the chat of all chats with lovely mossin i uh, hope you're loving it as much as i do it only gets better in part 2 so why don't you go and have a listen it's on the feed